make an announcement of a correction that I have. Uh, my sister messaged me today, thankfully in time for us to start recording. I accidentally said Guyana is in Africa and it's in South America. She says I might have gotten it confused because it was a predominantly African colony. Um, so there's a correction there. Sorry guys. I will just point out that I am not a journalist and this is something I do for fun. <laughs> apparently, I cannot read things. Did Ollie do anything? <laughs> yes, actually. So, Ollie, the other day, I'm like sitting on the couch, minding my own business, and I hear what sounds like a child screaming outside in the distance. And I'm like, what is that noise? And I look outside, I don't see anyone. And finally, I realized that the noise is coming from Ollie's stomach. And I'm like, what? He ate a child? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. But it's just this like loud, like weird noise that I'd never heard from his stomach before. And Ollie's my first dog. I've had him for years, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a dog expert. And so I just kept kind of paying attention to him for a little while and he started like moving around like he was uncomfortable and then eventually he started kind of popping up looking like he was in pain and like arching his back and so I was like oh god I don't know what's happening let me call his vet and so I call his vet and I explain what happened and they're like get him in the car right now bring him to the emergency room like here's the one that's closest to you don't don't call them first call on the way go go and I'm like oh my god like what is happening like Ollie I'm not ready for anything bad to happen to you and I get to the ED or the like pet emergency room Mm -hmm. and like they're you know doing they have their own like social distancing protocols and so you can only stay in your car and then a tech will come and get the dog mm-hmm. or animal when a um, veterinarian is ready to see your pet and so I'm like sitting in the car and my air conditioning in my car stopped working and so it's hot as heck windows down Ollie is like screaming like because he screams when he's in parking lots because he thinks you're gonna leave him in the car even though you're sitting there with him so it's absolutely ridiculous but he's also kind of like making noises because he's in pain and his stomach is still making noise um and the vet people are like yeah we're not gonna be able to see you for at least two hours I'm like well that's ridiculous um and so I was just so I was like about to have a heat stroke and I'm like all right well how about I come back in two hours like um so I'm just gonna go home because it was like right down the street and we go home and I just like rub Ollie's belly and he's like acting like he's in so much pain and then he just like lets out like the biggest gas and then he is fine like no issue and I was like I almost spent how much (laughs) for an emergency room visit because like you had gas oh my god why don't Um, you start with that story (laughs) 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. So this week, uh, Rachel had a topic idea and I had a topic idea and we figured out a middle ground. Um, Then I changed my idea too. Yeah. Just broadly women who kind of steal money one way or another and so that is basically what we're at kind of almost like a money scam or stealing money um and so yeah that's what we're gonna get into this week yeah it's Um, like our scams comma money category i am doing rita crundwell do you know who that is never heard of her She's from your neck of the woods. <laughs> what does that mean? Like Illinois? The West? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so Rita Crundwell was born Rita Humphrey to Ray and Caroline Humphrey in Dixon, Illinois on January 10th, 1953. When she was 17, she started working, um, like doing a student work study at the Dixon City Hall. And four years later, she was working for the mayor of Dixon as a secretary. That same year, she married Jerry Crundwell, and that's when her name became Crundwell. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> right. um, in 1978, she started showing horses, like at horse shows. Um, specifically, she was showing American Quarter horses, which is apparently a horse breed that is very fast when they run short distances. Can't relate. <laughs> And so um, eventually she started she started breeding those horses as well. Um, And so she created a business doing so named RC Quarter Horses. The horses she bred won over 50 world championships. And so her breeding operation became one of the most prominent and well known in the United States. And this will be important later. And so um, in addition to um, her role as a secretary for the mayor and uh, running her breeding operation, Rita was selected to be the city of Dixon's comptroller and treasurer by 1983 and continued this role for over 20 years. In this capacity, Rita was responsible for supervising all of the accounting and financial reporting for Dixon, Illinois. So she had a lot of power and likely very little daily or even regular oversight. And so In December of 1990, just seven years after being appointed treasurer and comptroller, Rita opened up a secret and fraudulent bank account. She named it the Reserve Sewer Capital Development Account, or RSCDA, and was the only person listed as the signer of the account. And so once she had that account set up and ready to go, she regularly had funds deposited into another account that she opened named the Capital Development Fund. And so once money was in that fund, she created fake invoices for services that the fake RSCDA um, had rendered and 
would write checks from the cap from the capital development fund account made payable to treasurer and then she would deposit that into the rscda account um sounds like a lot of work for yeah so basically she created like a fund for basically anything that's capital development related and then she created a fake capital development company um and so she was just essentially paying herself into this rscda um, account and so one of the main driving motivations for her doing all of this embezzlement was to financially support rc quarter horses uh, the american quarter horse breeding operation that i mentioned earlier And so she continued embezzling money following the same steps that I mentioned for over 20 years. Um, And so like many criminals, Rita started relatively small. And as time went on, she got even more bold, stealing more and more money each year. So a year after she started embezzling the money, she had only she had only stolen one hundred and eighty one thousand. Only one hundred eighty one thousand. Exactly. So it's funny because that amount of money seems like so much to me, but compared to how much she would end up stealing in a singular in a single calendar year later on, it really was just small grapes. And so small grapes. I thought it was like small potatoes. Small potatoes then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really just small potatoes. God, the phrase. Well, now over I here. was wondering if that was like another term that I just maybe haven't heard of. So yeah, compared to how much she would end up stealing in a calendar year, it wasn't a lot. <laughs> um, so in two thousand eight, she was able to steal almost six million dollars from the city of Dixon. And so that's especially shocking, not just because like she went from taking like 180 in a year to 6 million, but the actual annual budget for the city of Dixon was no more than eight to $9 million. And so she was taking the majority of the money for all of the essential services and salaries and everything else that a city needs to run. Um, Yeah, that's just insane to me that she was taking. So was she just like really like skilled then at cutting budgets for things and making you know managing it sounds like if people didn't notice that she was taking the majority so like maybe they should have cut taxes or they could have instead of her taking six million dollars away well i talk about that later on i'm sorry (laughs) continue um so in one year she had stolen two-thirds of the money allotted for all of the city of dixon's essential functions and needs um in addition to funding rc quarter horses rita used what she stole from the city to fund a luxurious lifestyle for herself it's important to note that rita's annual salary as treasurer was eighty thousand dollars and so i know for a lot of people eighty thousand dollars isn't all that much but for some people eighty thousand dollars is a lot however doing some research um overall living in a city like chicago is more than is more than 40 percent more expensive than living in the city of dixon and so that kind of tells you $80,000 you might you, you'll be okay in Chicago but right if it's 40 if it's 40 percent cheaper <laughs> to live in Dixon then I think you're probably doing pretty well getting a lot more bang for your buck yeah like $80,000 in Dixon wasn't pocket change um 
And so still she stole like millions of dollars every year to supplement her already comfortable income. And she used these funds to do things like buy a second home, buy fancy cars, and even buy a million dollar motor home. And so what? (laughs) So how did Rita get away with all of this for so long? You asked Rachel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So she basically would just claim that any discrepancies or shortfalls from like the budget and like how much funds were available was just because of the city itself being late on paying their own taxes. What? Like it really did not make it. She was just like, well, it's your fault. You guys haven't paid your taxes, even though she's the one who's controlling all of that. And so due to how much she was embezzling, she would also force various departments throughout the city government to make drastic budget cuts. And so employees often went two or more years without a raise. And there was like no street maintenance in well over 10 years. Um, So no roads got fixed, no sidewalks got paved, like nothing like that happened just because the city couldn't afford it because like she was just taking all of the money um and so as far as questions about rita's lifestyle most people saw this wealthy white woman and just assumed that she inherited the money that she lives off of Uh, they knew that there's no way that she was making that much from the city but sure she probably inherited it um other people thought that maybe her horse breeding company rc quarter horses was just making that much like in terms of prize money or selling horses they were just making that much still i don't know how i don't know anything about showing and raising and selling horses but i don't know how that can get you a million dollar motor home but i don't know (laughs) i don't know i know that the horse breeding like scene is all a bunch of rich people doing rich people stuff but um and so in 2011 rita decided to take an extended vacation in her stead acting as comptroller was a city clerk named kathy swanson taking stock and inventory of the accounts and accounting activity kathy came across the rscda account that rita set up to embezzle from the city By then, the account had 179 deposits, totaling more than $50 million over the course of 22 years. Um, So she was stealing an insane amount of money for 22 years. Um, And so Kathy, she didn't recognize the name of that company, the name of the account, or the services invoice. So she thought... um, so she just thought like maybe this is like just a mistake or um something like that and so she just brought it to um the mayor of dixon james burke he reviewed what kathy brought him all of the information and just immediately informed the fbi and so rita returned to work and continued business as usual and the fbi spent six months investigating um everything that kathy and james burke had brought to um had brought to them and the mayor and kathy went on as if nothing had happened and so six months later on april 17th 2012 when rita went into work um she thought everything was fine but this time fbi agents and u.s marshals were waiting for her she was arrested and indicted for embezzling 30 million dollars from the city for six years 
Three weeks later, another indictment came that superseded the original indictment. Rita was charged with embezzling $53 million since 1990. Oh my God. Yeah. And so eight months later, she made a deal with the prosecution and pled guilty to one count of wire fraud. Um, And she admitted to money laundering laundering since she had moved the money from the city to fund RC horses. And she was ordered to surrender her horse farm, 300 horses, $53.7 million in assets, possessions, and cash. Um, And so in early 2013, she was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in prison. And at the start of COVID-19 this year, um, in March, her legal team filed a motion on her behalf to release her to home confinement. But like a couple weeks later, maybe, you know, maybe even just days later, Rita withdrew her request and will likely remain in prison for at least another nine years. So. Oh my gosh. That's just because like. How do you measure the impact of taking that much money from however many people, you know? Like, if the police department was underfunded, if people had to lose their jobs, like, you don't even know the outreach or, like, the reach, I guess, um, of how many people's lives that that can affect. Like, I hope all those taxpayers got... A check from all the money that they paid into it or there was at least like something done to kind of ref- like I hope they got their streets cleaned or whatever because that's just terrible yeah 19 years does not seem like enough yeah and I also read that the city still hasn't recovered from um like financially recovered from all of the damage that she did um it just it, it seems just like how you know i i don't know she's a white lady yeah but it's just i i guess i'm the type of person i guess my threat bias or bias to threat whatever is just so high that like yeah like if you told me that if i took more than one cookie out of this cookie jar i'm going to prison for 19 years i'm not taking more than like the threat versus like the gain of having that cookie like it's just not worth it to me (laughs) like the risk like I just don't see like I get like living well for 23 years or 22 years versus having to go to prison for 20 years like she had to have known that it like was gonna catch up to her like maybe she was just so like cocky that she got away with it for so long you know well maybe there was some like mania behind it i'm just trying to like sift through or like a personality disorder of being like so narcissistic that you think you can get away with it for so long and then everyone around you just is like yeah she's great i mean me yeah i mean that's basically what happened like when um when it came time for like outside auditors like throughout before she got caught outside auditors were um, supposed to do audits for small cities like Dixon. I think the auditor who often worked with the city of Dixon said that he basically, whenever he got one from Rita, he just signed it off because he was like, it's a small town. I trust her. She's great. I would trust her with my life. Like, and so there was just like no stars like, external. Yeah. yeah. There was like no external accountability. It's just, 
it's just very like fascinating to me that I like I would be terrified of doing anything like that. Do I like would never? <laughs> if I see a dollar on the ground, I feel too guilty to pick it up because I'm like, what if the person who dropped it comes back and like tries to find it? Or I'm like, someone else could probably use this dollar or like five dollars, whatever, a lot more than me. So I can't, like, I can't pick it up. I like cannot pick up money off the ground. One time um, when I was a kid, I saw like a dollar on the ground and I went to grab it and my mom told me not to. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, because the person who put it there probably poisoned it and are trying to kill you. (laughs) My case is kind of similar. Um. I am going to be talking about a multi-level marketing scheme called Lou LaRoe. Have Ugh. you ever heard of yes. it? Yes. Have you ever had any experiences with multi-level marketing? I have that never you're willing to share. <laughs> I have never been involved in anything like that. So just to make sure I'm on the multi-level market, like basically there's like this company or whatever and they like pitch it to someone like, Hey, like you should be a seller or whatever. And then have them buy like the products off the top. Right. Right. So you are responsible for buying your own products and then for selling them. But in many cases you don't really get to decide what products you buy. And in most cases with multi-level marketing schemes, you make more profit from getting people to sign up under you and start, you know, buying their own products than you do from you yourself selling anything or from them selling anything. So um, I know that there's a lot of legal parameters kind of around multi-marketing schemes. Um, I guess maybe not all of them are like legally schemes, but I... I'm low-key kind of obsessed with multi-level marketing. I am constantly on this Reddit thread that's um, anti-MLM. And so I just like to read the stories of, like, people who get screwed over by multi-level marketing. Or, you know, I see a lot of it on, like, my Facebook feeds and stuff. And, like, same. occasionally, like, people will pop up out of, like, people from high school that I've never talked to are like, Hey, girl! how are you? And I'm like, I know never to respond to those because it's just going to be like an MLM. Yeah. But, well, I never have personally signed up for an MLM, but in, I do remember in college, one of my friends signed up for Mary Kay and she like was throwing a little Mary Kay party and was like, oh my God, please come, please come. Like, I need you to come. And like, you don't have to buy anything. No pressure. Like, blah, 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 blah. But on the other hand would be telling me like, oh, well, I make fi- I'm going to make 50% commission off of like if someone buys something from me, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'm a poor college student. And if I know that I'm paying like $8 for this terrible lip gloss and then you're making $4 off of it, then why would I buy it? And yeah. it was just so uncomfortable. She was just doing like this little party for like all our sorority sisters and like I'm just like this is not the target market 
because for me too it's like their makeup isn't necessarily this great quality and it's not like super exclusive like I could buy something of similar quality at Target for half as much so why why would I buy it from you knowing that you're basically just taking four dollars from me and yeah like just ask for four dollars yeah like do you need four dollars like I will give you four dollars I will buy you a coffee but two just like the whole like for anxiety related reasons I could never do that because you have to sell to your friends and family and I just think that that puts like such a weird dynamic into things like I would not want to be like I used to be in retail and like do sales and I was terrible at that um because I just don't like asking people to buy things like I just feel too bad so um I could never make it as an MLM but I just remember that party being so awkward and just yeah oh my gosh and then one of Evan's friends like girl I guess fiance she was like we were all hanging out one time and we were talking she's like oh my god I won a contest and like this it's for Mary Kay and like they're gonna like do makeovers for all of us because I'm getting married soon it's like a bridal contest and I won it and I was just like (laughs) Have you never heard of Mary Kay before? You definitely did not win anything, and they're just going to be trying to sell you stuff the whole time. So I was like, yeah, I'll totally go. Um, And then I didn't. (laughs) Because I'm like, you, like, I was just like, do not, like, you're so proud of yourself for, like, winning this contest, but it's not. And then they're just going to try to sell you stuff. I don't like people trying to sell me stuff or trying to sell other people's stuff. Um... So that was kind of a long intro into this Lou LaRoe story. I keep wanting to say Lululemon because they also yeah. do like leggings, but that's not the case. Um, but so Lou LaRoe was founded by Deanne Stidman. That's the main lady of our story today and her husband, Mark. The company got its name from their three granddaughters, Lucy, Lola, and Monroe, which like you named your granddaughter Monroe. Come on. I kind of like the name. I I think that's one of Mariah Carey's. um, I think that's her daughter's name. I kind of like it. I wouldn't pick it for my kid, but I think it's a cute name. It sounds weird to me, but that is just (laughs) a matter of personal preference. And I guess I apologize to anyone named Monroe. I'm sure that you are a lovely person. You better apologize to Mariah Carey. I'm so sorry. Mariah Carey. I know you're listening. I'm sorry. So Deanne, and I will be just calling her by her first name. I feel like I generally try to say the last names of people, but I'm just going to be calling her by her first name to avoid any confusion because I talk about her husband sometimes too. But um, so the both of them started the company with hopes of being a business for families. They promised entrepreneurship, freedom, and service to their workers. Their website boasts about social selling is what they're careful about calling it not multi-level marketing and highlights throughout that retailers will be in charge of their own schedules will have more time to spend with their families and promises them a very welcoming community um overall after looking at their site i got the impression that it's a, a lot of white people um i was able to do a little bit of digging and find some more representative models uh, the one thing that Lou LaRoe gets right is that I did see that they had a lot of models of different shapes and sizes. 
Um, so kudos to them for, for doing that. The, the clothing that they have is really bright and patterned. Um, everyone's hair is teased and curled and they're all sporting, you know, statement earrings or really chunky necklaces. This is, you know, so much not my style. I am definitely more of like a t-shirt and like black leggings type of person. Um, but what it did remind me of is kind of the fashion or style that was really popular in Oklahoma. Um, I did my undergrad there. So it's it's been a few years since I lived there. That was like back in the mid-2010s, but that was when... The mid-2010s. <laughs> <laughs> it's so long ago. It was like early to mid-2010s. Anyway, but that's when like the bulkier jewelry was in style. I was actually working on and off at Charming Charlie during that time, which is like a jewelry accessory store in Illinois. Um, so... I know, like, the huge, like, statement, like, bubble necklaces were in during that time. But I feel like Oklahoma never, like, that fad never went away. And that's, like, very much a more, like, southern thing. Yeah. What do you think? I saw, saw yeah, I went to college in Alabama, War Eagle, guys. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think to some degree some of these were kind of popular. I actually worked for an online clothing store. And, um some like there were a handful of items that we had in stock that like the like tag was LuLaRoe so oh wow um but yeah anyway the clothing style is very like patterny bright very like ah in your face um but interestingly the company's headquarters are in Corona California which like Corona is <laughs> shout out thing now uh but um so, Deanne was raised in Pasadena, California. Her parents, Albert and Maureen, Albert, that's another good name, um, and Maureen Startup, which is weird that their last name's Startup because it's like, oh, startup company. Um, but they met at Brigham Young University and together they had 11 children. Deanne and Are her- they Mormons? Ah, uh, it was Latter day Saints. I don't think I put that yeah. in there. Is that Mormons? Okay. Yeah. My bad. (laughs) Um, Yes. So Deanne and her siblings worked in the family's catering business. And in high school, Deanne was on the cheerleading team. She was also on honor roll. So clearly a very sociable and smart person. She would drive her mother crazy asking her to sew dresses for the school dances. Um, Deanne was the 10th out of 11 children. So her mother was tired of making clothes at this point. But um, Deanne's pastoring, you know, encouraged her to teach a lot of things to her daughter. So she learned a lot about, you know, necklines and buttons and zippers and other clothes stuff. Um, But here's where things took a little turn. Deanne's parents had a little side hustle. So they had the catering business, like about a billion children and their commitment to their faith. But also in 1969, they published a book called The Secret Power of Femininity, The book itself is, like, this bright pink color, has this, like, flowy silver cursive and two flowers on the cover. You know, very much, like, women, like, girl, like, stereotypical everything for a woman. And uh, so it's called The Secret Power of Femininity, The Art of Attracting, Winning, and Keeping the Right Man for You. Okay. The book said that women should not appear to be able to kill their own snakes or manage their own affairs. They encouraged women to practice pouting, stomping their feet, and looking in the mirror and saying things like, (laughs) and I will try to say this without throwing up, 
I am just a helpless woman at the mercy of you big strong men. I'm gagging. Um, it also reminds me of when I think the Duggar mom, she like came out like not long ago. And I don't I don't think it was a book, but I think it was like some article about like how to like keep your man happy and like don't show don't show your like calves and you have to have my man needs to keep me happy (laughs) you cannot see me rolling my eyes but i'm rolling my eyes like into the back of my head um but so maureen startup this is interesting so she established herself as an activist activist against the era the equal rights amendment which was a constitutional amendment that would end any legal distinctions between men and women Deanne's mother ended up being the chairwoman of the California branch of Phyllis Schlafly's Stop ERA group. And for anyone out there that is currently watching Miss America on Hulu, which I have been watching obsessively for the past few weeks, this Phyllis Schlafly, I hate her. I hate her so much. So it's kind of funny that like this article kind of tied into her, but she was like the worst lady ever. Go watch Miss America. She's terrible. I dislike her greatly. She, she's not nice. She's oh, she's so creepy. The actress that plays her is amazing, but like her yeah. as a person terrifies me. Yeah. Um, so back to Deanne. Deanne attended BYU and she was working towards her degree in fashion merchandising, though the school records show that she never actually received her degree. After leaving school, Deanne and her twin sister married two cousins in the Latter-day Saints community. Deanne had four children with her first husband, and they adopted three more from Romania in the 1990s. Deanne would later divorce her first husband and would marry her future co-founder, Mark Stidham. Deanne and her sister, named Diane, (laughs) Deanne and Diane, Deanne and Diane, um... They worked together in the 90s for a brief period of time. They opened a nail salon together, but that was really short-lived. And it also appears that they were selling clothes together for a period of time. Um, in the years before starting LuLaRoe, Deanne would host dress parties where um, she would invite the dressmaker to her home and put on little parties for her friends to buy clothes. She would also buy clothes wholesale and, again, kind of follow that same format of selling to friends, selling to family um and that you know kind of reflected later on in this multi-level marketing nonsense um in 2012 deanne started making her own maxi skirts and selling them to her friends the original company was called fitted so deanne kind of just kept building onto this and eventually her and mark started lou laroe in 2013 deanne was very involved in the beginning she would give out her personal cell phone number to her consultants she was running the company out of her home. It was like her own little Lou I can't even say this word. Lou LaRoe warehouse. Um, so when Deanne would bring others onto her team, her business style got some mixed reviews. So former consultants said Deanne liked keeping things neat. So no messy desks, no snacks, and she didn't like when people showed negative emotions in public which is dumb. Um, One of her employees, Lachey Kimbrough, remembered a day where she came into the office and she was dressed in Chanel. Deanna said, that's not Lou LaRoe, and made her go into the warehouse and change her clothes. Um, Which, you know, Chanel's like a little bit more high 
highbrow, a little bit classier than Lou yeah. LaRose. So <laughs> that was kind of a downgrade in my opinion. Um, as the company grew and grew, employees saw less and less of Deanne. So this is to be expected when a company starts to grow, but it seemed like the growth of the company was affecting Deanne in many ways. Over the course of four years, Lou LaRoe went from a small operation in Deanne's home to a $2.3 billion company. Um, one consultant said that Deanne urged her to show off her designer purse, which she had purchased before she had even started working with Lou, Lou LaRoe on social media, encouraging her to add in, you know, the little section how proud she was to buy this purse and how it made her feel so awesome. Um, and <laughs> this was kind of weird because when Deanne started the company, she carried around like a $20 purse. So, you know, which is definitely more my speed of like, I would not spend more than $20 probably on a purse. Um, but it clearly shifted her, her mindset where, you know, in the beginning she was probably more like a regular person and then now was all about like Louis Vuitton and like, I don't really know that many designers. So like other designers. Um, so after the company started to grow, Deanne would take her consultants on shopping sprees to very high-end stores, uh, showing off the whole thing on Instagram. Deanne was not afraid to flaunt her wealth, showing off pictures of her rides in private jets, her husband's many expensive cars, and riding horses in her $7 million ranch in Wyoming. She encouraged her top consultants to spend their money extravagantly and to show it off to the world. For some consultants, this was an easy task. Some of the top sellers in the company were making about 80k a month, but many, many other women were not so lucky. Starting kits for Lou LaRoe cost about $5,000, which is just, like, crazy. Who has $5,000 laying around to just drop on a bunch of clothes? I guess you're reselling them and, you know, hoping that you'll make more money, but that's a lot to buy that's in. A lot. That's a lot. Yeah, so the women who joined, you know, were promised friends. They were promised a sisterhood. This job was really appealing to those who needed flexibility um, on working out of their home, like single mothers, people with disabilities, or military spouses, or kind of people that they would target. It promised people control and freedom um, to, to a group of women who often felt like their lives were really out of their control. So in a video that I watched done by Vice, uh, there's this woman, Roberta Blessens. I don't know if that's her last name. I just kind of listened to it and wrote it down. Um, she talked about being drawn in by the promise of new friendships. She would live stream for about two to hour, two to four hours a day. And in the beginning, clothes were flying off the shelf. Her upline uh, encouraged her to keep buying. So upline would be the people who got her in. And they encouraged her to keep buying because, you know, the more you buy, the more clothes you will sell. Also, the more money they would make. But maybe they didn't mention that to her so much. Um, one consultant, Courtney Harwood, had amassed 3,500 women below her. So she was one of the top earners in the company. And she made between 30 and 50K a month. The, the top sellers, or rather recruiters, would make the majority of their money off the people below them and not from their own sales. This is a classic sign of a pyramid scheme is when you're making money off the people below you versus the sales that you're doing. So nonetheless, Courtney felt really close to Deanne, who she affectionately called Mama D. 
It was hard for Courtney when Deanne started encouraging her to get a gastric sleeve. Um, so Deanne had lost 72 pounds from the surgery. She was super excited about it and encouraged many others in her circle to follow her footsteps. One of Deanne's sisters would coordinate the trip, which involved flying to Tijuana. Deanne is, um, there's a video of her seeing that she recruited 18 people so far to, at the time of the video, to get the surgery. And, um, so it's weird that, like, multi-level marketing, but for a surgery now, too, it kind of spilled out in other areas of her life. Um, but she added Courtney to the group. They called it the Tijuana Skinnies and kept encouraging her to get the surgery. Courtney was really uneasy and decided to try getting a gastric balloon first. Um, as it was like a non-invasive surgery, it could be removed and kind of undone after you kind of retrain your body how to eat. The surgery did not go well and Courtney had to get the balloon removed. Deanne's sister said, hey, I told you this wouldn't work. Our doctor says this happens all the time, so when are you coming to Tijuana? Uh, and Courtney was like, I like almost died from getting this balloon in my stomach. I need some time to heal. Um, Deanne's sister would text her once every few weeks and Courtney continuously said, you know, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And eventually they kicked Courtney off the thread and she was kind of, you know, shunned, which is, you know, exactly what you want from your boss, encouraging you to have some weight loss surgery in Tijuana. Um, so in 2017, the company changed their bonus structure to follow the Federal Trade Commission guidelines. Bonuses were now calculated off of clothes sold instead of clothes bought. Courtney started to lose money to the point where it was no longer sustainable for her to be part of this company. Um, so the video I was watching, I should have looked up what time period it was, but um, at the time of the video, she was suing the company, and as she was waiting for a settlement, she was just trying to get by on the small amount of money that she had kept saved. Uh, Courtney expressed regret in the video about not saving more money, but felt the pressure while she was in it to spend and keep spending and keep up this really extravagant lifestyle from her LuLaRoe family. Um... So again, LuLaRoe, they encouraged their consultants to buy, buy, buy. They would say, you know, do whatever it takes to build your inventory, whether that meant spreading it out over a bunch of credit cards, taking out personal loans, or taking a second mortgage out on their home. And people would do it because they were promised a return. Soon, everything came crashing down. Consultants started to complain about the clothing they received. Their orders would be wet, moldy, sometimes smelly, and the clothing would rip like wet toilet paper, according to a Business Insider report. After many complaints, Lou LaRoe started a buyback policy, promising to refund the cost of unsold merchandise 100%. They would even cover the cost of shipping and handling. It was too good to be true. After thousands of consultants fled the business, Lou LaRoe changed their policy. They would now only apply um, the returns to inventory purchased within the last year, and they would only refund 90% of the wholesale costs. The returns kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and lawsuits against the company started to pile up. In August of 2018, the leaders of the company held a meeting with the top consultants, who were starting to feel the effects of the evacuation of consultants. They were encouraged to donate or discount their unsold merchandise. The consultants were furious about having to just take the loss. 
They were also growing exceedingly frustrated with the ugly prints that they were receiving and weren't able to sell. Uh, so Deanne apparently didn't see a problem at all. She assured those that were still with the company that everything was fine and that they should just continue to buy clothes. Um, some consultants accused her of being out of touch. Uh, so she was still surrounded by her mansions, her husband's expensive cars, and did not put an end to her displaying her luxurious life on Instagram. Um, so what's going on now? So LuLaRoe is being sued by Providence Industries, its chief supplier, for $63 million. They say that the company owes them in unpaid bills. The state of Washington is suing the company for operating a pyramid scheme. And there are six cases that were consolidated into a class action lawsuit. Um, the consultants behind this lawsuit claim that LuLaRoe knowingly sold them faulty products and refused to refund them. The lawsuit is scheduled for October of 2020. So it's not a traditional crime. No one, unfortunately, ended up in jail yet. But it's clear that there may have been some illegal activity and it's just very disappointing that a company like this that kind of goes after women who are in more vulnerable positions and this one woman who kind of like sells herself as like I used to be a struggling mother too and now I have million dollar mansions and my husband has all these fancy cars and look at my Instagram trips that I go on it's like come on that's yeah. terrible no I definitely agree it just I don't it seems like it is all illegal like I, I guess that's my moral compass not really law talking but it's shady yeah it's like the um person you did what's her face oh elizabeth Holmes. yeah 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 from theranos yeah not thanos not thanos and it just (laughs) kind of sucks because i feel like in a lot of ways we have all of these protections for corporations for companies but the same very similar i think similar ish thing kind of happens to individual people but the protections aren't necessarily as in place because if you think about it in a weird way it is kind of an investment they are buying like they're a piece of that company almost like if they're franchising it themselves like they're getting their you know and so like if the way she's making money is actually off of them and there's no guarantee like it just i don't know it just gets very hairy and messy and i mean i i'm gonna assume most likely nothing it's probably meant i don't know like i like i don't think there's like a huge psychopathology that is necessarily behind this so much as right this is just somebody who like the cards aligned and she saw a market the cards and an opportunity you said the phrase wrong again <laughs> stars aligned <laughs> gosh um and um so yeah, the stars no, aligned, right. and she saw an opportunity to take advantage of people and people were taken advantage of and that kind of sucks well yeah and that's where i feel like billionaires or millionaires don't always have an understanding that you know because you did you worked hard hopefully to get where you are and you put a lot of time and invested a lot of money into it but also a big piece of that was luck which i feel like 
some people don't understand. Like you were saying, like she got really lucky that this ended up working out for her, but now things are crumbling and hopefully she'll have to sell some of her mansion or cars or whatever. I agree. I just think that it's interesting to think about multi-level marketing schemes and I feel like women are kind of disproportionately affected by them and that they target women who are in you know sometimes difficult periods of their life because they know that they can take advantage of them and say oh just put it on some more credit cards just get a second mortgage out on your home like no one should ever be telling you to do that and thinking of it as good financial advice i agree and i'm not gonna like you know quote unquote victim shame um but i do think that there is like a small aspect of personal responsibility that's that like more people just need to have a little bit in terms of of course the salesman is going to sell you this car but do your research you know like Mm -hmm. do a little bit more due diligence and i mean it sucks because a lot of the time these are people who just really need it or right like, it I seems like a really are, good opportunity they're desperate and, and they yeah. don't have the capability of you know getting yeah. another job but if you do but if you do at least have the resources to just look at the better business bureau right um, just like look be a little bit more diligent because it for me i've been hearing such horrible things about mlm schemes and all of that for i feel like the better part of a decade and yet I see more and more friends, new friends jumping in on that bandwagon. And for me, I'm just like, like some of these people, like I went to college with, like right. I'm aware of your capability to Google. And so I just, my warning to anyone who might be considering, just do your research. Yeah, that's, I think that's fair enough. And Hopefully, you know, it, it works out for you if that's, you know, the route that you decide to take. But clearly, in many cases, it doesn't work out for a big majority of people. And that's not great. And it's very sad. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.